Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Dr. Mike Behe. It was just the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Behe. Today, we're going to be picking up where we left off and talking to him more about the edge of evolution. If you missed last week's show, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Behe. He is a biochemist who teaches at Lehigh University. He is a well-known proponent of intelligent design, and he has authored monumental books on the topic. These include Darwin's Black Box and The Edge of Evolution. If you haven't read his books, I encourage you to pick them up wherever you buy books. You can find out more about Dr. Behe at discovery.org. Again, that's discovery.org. Anyway, let's pick up where we left off last week, talking to Dr. Behe about the edge of evolution. Last week, you talked about the book, The Edge of Evolution, that you wrote back in 2007, and you described the mathematical limits of naturalistic Darwinian processes. So what are the mathematical limits of naturalistic Darwinian processes? Well, the mathematical limits are essentially the, uh, the likelihood or the probability or the improbability of getting helpful mutations within all of the organisms in all of the history of the world. And you can actually calculate something like that because mutations are rare events. Think of it kind of as like a winning a lottery ticket. Okay, so winning the Powerball lottery is, is very rare. Uh, well, suppose you needed two mutations to get some helpful effect. That one wasn't enough. It didn't do anything. You needed two. Well, that would be like winning two Powerball lotteries. And for a, a person to do that is, uh, is extraordinarily rare. Well, what if you needed three? Well, then, of course, the odds against it go up exponentially uh, with each additional uh, win or each additional mutation uh, that it takes to have some selectable effect. Um, and there's uh, scientists have calculated that there's roughly been about, oh, 10 to the 40th or so cells in the entire history, uh, billions of years of life on Earth. So if the odds against something happening exceed that, then you can say we don't expect that uh, to occur. That's beyond the likelihood, beyond the powers of Darwinian evolution to uh, to produce. And so in, in my book, The Edge of Evolution, I tried to find where that would be uh, in biology. That tells us a lot about the theory of evolution, because there's no way you could have the biodiversity that we see today with only that number of cells, correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, you, you, you wouldn't be able to have a much less you would, yeah. than that you, know, you would expect to be produced by, by Darwin's mechanism of evolution. Wow. Um, you know, uh, in, in the book, I write that 
just getting the two, a couple of basic units of the molecular machinery of life, proteins, uh, together is a feat that is very, very difficult for evolution to do. Um, um, I talked uh, earlier last week about uh, a molecular machine called a flagellum, and these machines are made out of parts called proteins. They're little, they're molecules that can stick to each other, and they can uh, give the machinery its capabilities. But unlike machinery in our everyday world, say a, a, a an outboard motor that you could see on a boat, you know uh, that outboard motor is put together by intelligent agents. There are, you know, there are workers who put the nuts and bolts and propeller and things. They put them on and they screw them together and they make sure that it's connected in the right way. Well, it turns out that proteins, the components of the molecular machinery they have to put themselves together. And uh, here's a, a simplified way of looking at it. Is suppose you had a, a kind of a, a piece, a, uh, a ball, and you needed it to stick to another specific piece. Well, what you could do is you could put little magnets on the ball in the correct, in a specific order, and have them um, match up with magnets on this piece that it's supposed to stick to. But, of course, you have to be careful because if there's lots of pieces that have to go into making a particular molecular machine, you have to make sure they will not stick to other pieces in the incorrect order. So suppose you had two pieces that it would be beneficial for uh, an organism if they stuck together to start to build a molecular machine. How difficult is it to get to put the magnets on them in the right place uh, so that they will stick specifically to each other and not to other people? Uh, it turns out that's extraordinarily difficult. It's, it uh, would occur maybe once in every, oh, about as often as, as you'd get uh, resistance to chloroquine in uh, in uh, uh, in malaria, about once in every hundred billion billion attempts, ten to the twentieth. Okay, well, suppose that you needed another protein to stick to these other two uh, to make three proteins uh, starting to build a molecular machine. Well, the odds of getting those three again are since there's two protein protein interactions between proteins number one and two and between uh, protein 2 and 3, that would be the multiple of the odds against getting 1. So that would be essentially 10 to the 20th times 10 to the 20th, which is 10 to the 40th, which is the number of cells that have ever lived in the entire history of the world. So in the entire history of the world, you would expect one, count them, one uh, such arrangement. And it turns out there are tens of thousands of protein-protein interactions in cells, including molecular machines that are made up of hundreds of different proteins that all have to stick stick together very specifically. So uh, in my book, I conclude that anything beyond two protein-protein interactions is at, that is clearly beyond the edge of evolution. And so since most molecular machinery in the cell requires more than that, I conclude that 
most of the machinery in the cell is beyond Darwinian processes. And since the cell is an integrated whole, I conclude that, well, the cell itself uh, cannot have been produced by, by, uh, uh, by Darwinian processes. Um, and, and it snowballs from there. <laughs> so 10 to the 40th is a large number, but it statistically limits Darwinian evolution. That's right, it, and it, it limits it you know, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, like yeah. I said, it, it's a big number, but if you, count, if you try to calculate your odds of winning the Powerball lottery you know, two or three times in a row, you have, with just two or three events, you've reached the limits yeah. uh, of the likelihood of, of, of that happening. It reminds me of Dembski's universal probability bound, but this is maybe more of a biological probability bound. That's that's right. Uh, with William Dembski, he calculated, you know, something esoteric about the total number of possible interactions in the entire observable universe. Uh, I'm not a physicist, so I I stick with just the number of cells that are that are on Earth. Wow. So evolution rests on the concept that natural selection preserves positive mutations that add new information to the genome. You explain how this doesn't occur in nature, how positive mutations are rare, and when they do occur, they involve burning bridges rather than building new features. Will you describe that for us? Sure. Uh, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with my uh, discussion of malaria and the mutations we have found in human genomes and in the malaria genome itself um, uh, that have occurred under this kind of battle between the two. Uh, but but first, I'll, let me make a clarification because okay. people get confused. Uh, you have to make a distinction between helpful mutations or positive mutations and constructive mutations. Uh, you know, a, a mutation can be helpful, but it can be helpful by destroying a gene that under some circumstances is causing problems. Uh, so it can be beneficial, beneficial, but degrade something. Uh, in order to be constructive, uh, you want it to be adding a new feature, building up, uh, building up things in the cell. It turns out we've discovered a lot of helpful but degradative mutations. Uh, the other ones, the, uh, the constructive ones, are, are extremely rare. Uh, in, in our experience. And uh, again, uh, let me give you some examples of, uh, of these helpful but degradative mutations. And uh, if you look at the human genome in people who live in malarious regions of the world, uh, there have been a lot of number of mutations that have helped them survive. Uh, and, you, and these days, with the ability of science to sequence DNA, we can track down and look at the very level of DNA what exactly those mutations are. And most people know about the most famous one, uh, the sickle cell mutation, the sickle mutation. that It can cause disease, uh, terrible disease, when it occurs, when two copies of the sickle cell gene occur uh, in somebody uh, either in the United States or or in uh, or in Africa or India or uh, malarious regions of the world. But if there's only one copy of the mutation, then uh, that 
actually helps a person fend off malaria if you live in that region. In, in the United States, it doesn't really do anything because um, we don't have malaria anymore. It was pretty much eliminated after World War II by spraying and, and other things. Uh, so it's only a kind of a net negative in the United States because of two people carrying just one copy of a uh, sickle gene get married, they can produce a child who has two copies and then suffers from sickle cell disease. But in, the, in Africa, one copy can help a person uh, survive, fend off malaria. I won't, I won't say why. Uh, but it, it turns out that, that you know, that's one change, one little change in a pre-existing protein, hemoglobin, that has hundreds of others, other amino acids. And it, it's really not, you know, giving it anything giving it any new abilities. Uh, it does help it resist malaria, but it doesn't you know, create a new molecular machine or, or anything like that. But uh, let's talk about uh, a handful of other mutations that are known to help in the resistance to malaria. There's a, another mutation in hemoglobin, which is called thalassemia. And in this mutation, uh, it, the mutation breaks... Uh, hemoglobin. It either breaks the gene for one part or the other, called the alpha chain or the beta chain. But all of the mutations uh, that destroy a copy of of the hemoglobin gene, for some reason, which is not quite clear, leads to resistance to malaria. Uh, there is another pro protein called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase. And if you get a mutation in it, which destroys uh, that protein, that helps, for some reason, resist malaria. Uh, another protein called Duffy protein. If you break it, you're resistant to malaria. So in our experience, almost all, you know, five out of six or so mutations that are helpful, that are beneficial, that lead to people surviving when they otherwise would die, they get all their beneficial activity by breaking genes, by throwing things away. You say to yourself, how can that be? How can something that breaks something, you know, be beneficial? Well, you know, suppose you, uh, you were in a sinking ship and you had to make it to shore. What could you do to help uh, increase your chances of making it to shore? One thing you could do is, you could throw overboard any heavy equipment that you didn't absolutely need. So sophisticated computers and machinery and so on, if you just threw it over the over overboard, uh, then the ship would be lighter and maybe you could make it to shore. So that, that can go on. You can just get rid of things you don't need. Um, and uh, another example is suppose that um, you uh, wanted to increase the gas mileage of your car, uh, what could you do to quickly increase the gas mileage of your car? Well, one thing you could do right now is break off the side view mirrors, and breaking them off might decrease the wind resistance it feels when it's, when it's driving along and therefore increase the gas mileage. Well, of course, you don't have your, rear, your side view mirrors anymore, so that's a drag. But, you know, maybe you don't need them right now, and you do need that increase in gas mileage. 
So it could be a benefit to break or get rid of sophisticated equipment or, or otherwise useful equipment that you don't need right now. And it turns out that uh, those are overwhelmingly the types of mutations that we find uh, when we look at nature. And those mutations are never going to give us all that we see as far as life is concerned. It's just impossible. That's right. If, if, you, throw a, if you throw a computer over a ship because it would help you stay afloat, that does not tell you how computers are made. Uh, if you if you blow up a bridge because some invading army is going to cross over it to to uh, reach your your city or your land, blowing up the bridge does not tell you how bridges are built. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the God Solution. You can find out more about the God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Again, that's GodSolutionShow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Mike Behe. I hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. So you talked about the mathematical limits of evolution a few questions ago, and you state that Darwinian processes are incapable of producing a new protein-protein interaction. Uh, what do you mean by that phrase, a protein-protein interaction, for our audience, and what does that tell us about the theory of evolution as a whole? Uh, well, uh, let, me, let me just make a little correction. The, the um, edge of evolution, or the, the limit, is not one, but two protein-protein interactions. Uh, I say that with great difficulty, one new one could be produced, but, but two would be beyond it. Uh, well, what is a protein-protein interaction? It's, um, it's this process where two pieces of a machine have to recognize each other and assemble themselves into a bigger piece. So if you think of, oh, uh, a mousetrap, that has a uh, a spring and another piece, say the holding bar. In our everyday world, a person would put the spring down, kind of clamp it into place, put the holding bar or the hammer into place, and and attach it to the wooden base. But it's the person that's putting arranging these things in the in the right order. If if the order is not correct, if the person puts them somewhere where they aren't supposed to be, the, the trap isn't going to work. Well, in the cell, the molecular machinery has to assemble itself. And uh, the way it does it is through these things that I've called protein-protein interactions. And proteins uh, are little uh, what are called polymers. They're chains of uh, things called amino acids. And they kind of fold up into compact shapes. And many of the amino acids have electrical properties. They have either a positive charge or a negative charge. And other ones have a, uh, uh, an oily character as opposed to a, a, a character that likes to be in contact with water. We know that oil and water don't mix. So ones with oily character like to be away from water. And, of course, positive charges like to be next to negative ones and negative ones next to positive ones and a number of other such chemical considerations. Well, it turns out if that two different proteins have chemically and physically complementary regions on their surfaces, one will be attracted to and stick to the other. So if the positive charge is opposite the negative charge, when the two stick together, 
and an oily region is next to another oily region because they both want to be excluded from water, then they will stick together. But it turns out that that's a, uh, that's a very difficult thing to do one change at a time, and and so uh, that's that's the uh, phenomenon. That's the the basic problem that I zeroed in on in 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 the edge of evolution. So evolution, at least naturalistic Darwinian evolution, is fatally flawed in some incredibly complex ways. Do you think evolutionists subscribe to naturalistic Darwinian evolution because the evidence confirms it, or do they do so out of a presuppositional commitment to naturalism? Uh, well, uh, there's there's a lot of evolutionists, and so you know, of course it's it's kind of a mix between the two. I I think that overall the whole field uh, back in the day, back when Darwin first proposed his idea. You know, there was a, an excuse then that, you know, people really didn't know what was at the foundation of life. They didn't know about molecules. They didn't know about DNA or proteins. And so they could hope that maybe protoplasm could be shaped easily and and these random variations and selection that Darwin talked about, well, that might, that might actually uh, do a, a lot, a lot more than, you know, skeptics then thought. But as the uh, as the ground shifted, as science learned more and more about the astounding intricacy of life, about the genetic code and about molecular machines and, and all sorts of things, the bottom kind of dropped out of Darwin's theory. The prerequisite for it to work uh, dissolved. And I think, uh, I in my mind most uh, scientists don't really think about the theory in detail. They kind of imbibe it uh, as it's kind of passed on in in lectures from professor to student and uh, student you know and generations uh, uh, people just assume that it's true. Uh, they imbibe a view where skeptics of Darwinism are uh, are you know just uh, uh, Questioning it for uh, for irrelevant reasons, for religious reasons, or, or something else, and and so they brush them off and and don't really think deeply about the theory. The one folks who do think deeply about the theory and nonetheless hang on to Darwinism, uh, in my experience, many of them are committed to naturalism. They simply don't want purposeful design to be true. Um, and they've got their work cut out for them because the because <laughs> yeah. the data are are turning strongly against them. That seems to be more the case today than ever before. Absolutely. The the, the thing about intelligent design is that the more we know, the stronger the case becomes. Back at, like as I said back in Darwin's day, when the cell was thought to be a little piece of jelly, protoplasm, it, it didn't seem like a big deal at all, you know, to get to get new life started and be able to shape things the way uh, you needed them to be shaped. But then, you know, enzymes were discovered, these these proteins that could convert uh, chemicals into other chemicals. And then DNA was discovered, and it was discovered that there was a genetic code that carried information, and that all of this stuff was specified. Then there were uh, discovered molecular machines that really acted as as outboard motors and trucks and buses and 
uh, in the cell. And the more and more we know, the the uh, more and more uh, the case for intelligent design becomes uh, undeniable. So you're considered one of the pillars of the intelligent design movement. What do you think have been some of the highlights of this movement, and where do you see it going in the future? In the history of the intelligent design movement, one of the big events was the publication in 1986 of a book by a man named Michael Denton, who was a physician and a geneticist working in Australia at the time, called Evolution, a Theory, and Crisis. And that's, uh, um, that was really, I think, the spark that set off the intelligent design movement, because a, a number of the folks uh, who have become involved in it read that book and, and got together, and it kind of gave us, uh, as you say, uh, in college, you yourself saw the problems with Darwin's theory, but nobody had, if nobody else says anything, then you, the tendency is to think that you yourself are the, are the, you know, uh, one with a problem that, that, uh, that it must be you. But if somebody else takes the lead and, and, um, points out the problem that you agree with, well, now, now you have much greater confidence that there is a real concern here. And after a publication of Denton's book, uh, another man named Philip Johnson, who's a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley at the time, became very interested in the topic of Darwinian evolution because as a lawyer he was interested in arguments and logic and so on and saw lots of problems with Darwin's theory. And He gathered around himself a number of folks, including William Dembski and myself and Paul Nelson and a number of people, uh, Doug Axe, who have gone on to publish books and carry the argument uh, a, a lot further. Uh, and uh, another highlight has been the number of books that have been published uh, making the case for design. You know, uh, book I published, Darwin's Black Box, uh, Steve, Stephen Meyer's publication, who's, who's Steve Meyer's the director of the uh, Discovery Institute, uh, has written a number of recent books on uh, the case for intelligent design. So I think that these days we have an intellectual presence, an unwelcome one, <laughs> but we, <laughs> but we have an intellectual presence in the uh, in the talk over where life came from, uh, and it'll take some further work and further pushing to, uh, I think, break through and become more mainstream. But we're on our way. Well, thank you so much for being on the God Solution. It's been great talking to you. You've been someone that I've admired for almost 20 years now, and so it's just a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Well, thank, thanks very much. I had a, I had a grand time. I, I'm always happy to talk about this to anybody who will listen. That's wonderful. Any last words or websites that you'd send people to or books that you'd recommend, anything like that that you'd like to leave us with before you go? Yeah, a, a good place, if, if any of your, your listeners would like to find out more about this, a wonderful place is the Discovery Institute website. They have a blog uh, called Evolution News and Views that talks about current issues on evolution, and they've got an uh, archive of articles by myself and a, a lot of other folks uh, writing about various issues in, in the debate, and it's a great place for people to get up to speed on, on the issues. 
If you want to go there, go to discovery.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Behe, for being on The God Solution. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in again this morning and for hearing the second part of the interview with Dr. Mike Behe. This interview and all of our past shows are up at godsolutionshow.com, and you can get them there under the Past Shows tab. Well, I hope that you realize that evolution is a myth, and we were created by a God that loves us dearly. In fact, the Bible says that all who come to him, putting their faith in him, will be saved. If you've never taken that step to put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him alone for salvation, I ask that you do that this morning, and that you'd verbalize that, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I ask that you would come into my life as Savior and Lord, that you would make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says if you have taken that step to trust in Christ, you'll be adopted into his family. Keep tuning in to The God Solution Show. Go to godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows and a ton of other resources. And while you're there, please leave some comments. Let me know what you think about the show. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. You could also donate to the show while you're there, make a tax-deductible donation, and help expand the ministry of The God Solution Show. Well, I'm so glad that you tuned back in, and I hope that you'll tune back in next week. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.